Welcome to the RSP cast, Film and Data, Adam Harstead, Matt Waldman. Always a pleasure to get a chance to catch up with Adam. And my phone just rang. That's so funny. Well, they can talk to us at another time because I don't know anybody from Luthersville, Georgia, Adam. You don't want to do the first time, long time listener, first time caller bit? No, because it'll probably be about a warranty, I think, for my car that expired. So, you know, something along those lines. But you know, let's we're going to talk about a few things this week about waiver wire budgets, why yards per carry is just a, a shitty metric, um, you know, where you stand on the idea of momentum in football, and and then maybe talk about maybe some uh, some players from the past who we just think are maybe don't get the claim they deserve just based on what we know about them um, from our perspective as fans and analysts. So let's begin with the waiver wire budgets. You know, I always think that you, how you break down waiver wire budgets and how you manage them is great information. And I would love for you to share that today. Yeah. So one thing about fantasy football um, that I think a lot of analysis neglects to mention is that time is a cost, right? Like effort, energy, mental space is a cost. There are things that you can do that will give you a small edge in your in your league, but they're going to take so much time that like you could spend that energy elsewhere and probably get a much better return on investment. Unless you have infinite time, and I've yet to run into anybody who had infinite time to just seek every edge possible, um, I think it's good to, to prioritize and to pick and choose. And, and free agent blind bid waiver wire budgets are one of those areas where I just pick and choose and just choose not to participate, basically. You know, I've done research on this in the past. Um, and everybody remembers waiver wire wonders in the past who they've gotten off of waivers who've gone on to do big things. I'm not denying that those guys exist. But the guys who wind up being that are not the guys we think are going to be that. Uh, usually there's one or two guys a year who are just like the consensus sure things. You had Elijah Mitchell last year where he was completely off the radar, had a monster week one, um, and then everybody wanted him. Uh, James Robinson was that guy. He's off the radar. Jags cut Fournette. He has a monster week one. Everybody wants him. And so usually my strategy is I try to find one of those guys pretty early on in the season that I like, and I'll just spend my whole budget on him um, just to make sure I get him um, it, in leagues that will allow me to make free transactions later. If if there's a minimum bid requirement, then maybe I'll spend like 80% of my budget to leave me a little bit of money to make, you know, kicker and defense changes later on. Um, and that one guy is probably the closest thing that you're going to get to a sure bet, but really it's about a 30 to 40% shot. Um, beyond that, most of the huge breakout waiver wire wonders are not guys that everybody saw and everybody wanted. They're guys who maybe they showed a tiny little flash of something and somebody preemptively rostered them a couple weeks in advance. And then they had their huge breakout game buried on somebody else's bench um, and so you get guys, you know, like Adam Thielen when he broke out and um, like the hot backup running back when the when the starter goes down. Usually they're at the end of somebody's bench. They got them for free or for a dollar. Uh, so that's my approach. I, I just blow the bulk of my budget within a week or two. Some would argue friv frivolously. Um, but if anybody catches my eye and I'm like, I know there's going to be competition for him and I want him, I'll just shoot the whole shot. You know, I'll get the whole the whole 
wad on one guy. And then after that, every week I'm looking at who's starting to show like any signs of life at all, who like, I can see a path where two weeks from now, maybe this guy will be something. Um, and you just kind of churn the end of your roster on those preemptive pickups and 90% of them aren't going to work out, but then you just cut them in a week or two and replace them with someone else. So that's my waiver strategy. It's uh, in theory, like parsing the, should I bid, you know, like 88% or 89%? Should I bid $144 or 145? What if somebody else is thinking this and they do 145 and I should come in with 146 playing that game? Maybe you can squeeze out a tiny, tiny extra edge, but the edge is going to be so marginal and so small that it, it's just not worth the headspace. It's not worth the time. It's not worth the stress. Pick a guy you want, go get him, and then just proactively look ahead after that. So, so my Dwight Schrute, one hundred and one penny isn't gonna, it doesn't do it for you. So there we go. I, no, I think it's a, I think it's a, a wise way of going. But uh, are there any? Is there anybody this early on that you that you've looked at and you're thinking, okay, I might, I might preemptively spend a little bit money on on these guys, or is it still early at this point? Yeah, I don't know. Nobody's really caught my eye. I mean, I'm kind of churning. Um, you know, I grabbed Juwan Johnson, tight end for the Saints last week, and I'm like, eh, let's see if he does anything. Uh, I think I might be ready to cut bait on that one, especially with Olave getting so into the mix. It's getting harder to see a path for, and, and with Thomas looking so good, it's getting harder to see a path for, uh, well, and, and with Winston looking so not great. Yeah. I just, I don't see a path there. So I'll cut him and I'll get another speculative ad. Um, it's always worth rostering clear cut number two running backs uh, just because injuries happen. It, you know, they're like lottery tickets. There's no real skill involved. Just get whoever's available and maybe you get lucky and they get relevant and maybe you don't get lucky and they don't. Um, but any clear cut number two should be rostered by someone. And if he's not, he should be rostered by you. Um, I have, you know, like a lot of Jamal Williams because and, and he actually has a decent amount of standalone value. Um, but if there's a DeAndre Swift injury, he's one of those guys where somebody's going to go to the waiver wire looking to bid 100 percent of their budget. And they're going to find out like he's gone because somebody added him for a buck or two or three weeks before um, Mark Ingram. It just good backup running backs. If you have bench spots, they're probably the most productive players to quote-unquote develop on your bench because they're the most likely players to see huge value spikes and if you have to cut them later on it's not a huge loss yeah i find myself looking at a lot of running back threes not to add but just to monitor throughout the year like yeah. where they're in battles with someone like you know benjamin and daryl williams daryl is obviously the the more established guy that everybody knows about and the coaches know about and feel like he's a sure thing but he continues to split time with you know, Benjamin in Arizona and Benjamin's playing well enough to hold, maybe not hold him off, but you can tell that the Cardinals don't know who their number two running back is just yet either. Like, I, you know, one thing that I've always noticed with coaches in recent years, and Eli Mitchell is a good example, but it really goes back to um, Jamichael Hasty is Kyle, ben, Kyle Shanahan saying about Jamichael Hasty in like one of the first three weeks of the year, I think it was like two or three years ago, he said, we really didn't know what we had in Jamichael. We watched him in practice, and he looked great. But we found by experience that until we see a guy in literal game conditions 
um, in the regular season, we don't really know what we have in a running back. And I think that's the case probably for a lot of coaches that they feel that way because of all the variables that a running back has to process um, on the field because, you know, as a guy like Rick Spielman has talked about a lot um, in a recent, I think it was either on the ringer or the athletic pre-draft, he said, you know, teams are discovering that the closer you play the line of scrimmage or to the middle of the field, the closer you play to the middle of the field, um, the more you have more information you have to process, which is is logical. And so they they're trying to develop testing for that, and they found that running back was an underrated position in terms of the level of processing that they have to, um, you know, have to to be good. And I think that that's part of that. So Eno Benjamin is one of them. I still maintain that while Edwards Hilaire is the certainly the incumbent in that committee, Andy Reid has always had a had an approach of let's let's start with two or three guys let's let's each give them roles let's see how this goes if it continues to go the way it is we'll either keep it a committee or if one guy starts to stand out a little bit more we'll give him a few more touches injuries happen and then he slowly kind of builds that to where one guy starts getting more touches than the rest um and then if he and he likes seeing what he's getting from that guy he made give him a lead more of a a larger lead role um and then if it doesn't work out then it, he, he goes back to the committee and i've seen him do this at least in a number of iterations another one that may be worthwhile considering from that um mix of players that um where they're just kind of trying it out trying it on for size i mean i think that or another guy that I think is worthwhile. He's not a guy that, when he comes back, is, Dal is um, Dontrell Hilliard. I think he's an interesting back. He didn't get a lot of touches, but the kinds of touches he got as a receiver is um, very interesting because they weren't just little leak routes. You know, they were they were routes that you'd see a tight end run that um, more often, and so that's an interesting. That's kind of an interesting look as well. And then like number three guys, like to me, Michael Boone, Mike Boone in Denver's offense, if he's a, he's a number two quality back who could be an impact starter based on his skill set. So if there's a, if, you know, if one of those two guys get hurt and Gordon and, and Williams, he's, he's going to be a good number two to pick up pretty much right away. So the examples like that come to mind, but I love the idea of just just understanding, you know, like the number two back, there's certain receivers that, you know, it seems to me whenever I've had success with the waiver wire, it's been exactly that. It's the preemptive preemptive guy that I'm just going to put on my roster and down the stretch, they they work out well. Like I, I, I always laugh about it. It seems for the past three years, I'll come on a show where I'm asked about a waiver wire pick and I'll say, Tim Patrick is a is a good receiver to consider and i and the response i've gotten from multiple people have been like eh, you know and then it's he outproduces the big name that like that that has been touted like you know for three or four weeks while he's been giving you know solid some you know solid nine to 15 points and you know in ppr leagues in in each game so yeah i like um I mean, I, I always have a, a watch list of guys who, um, for one reason or another, I like. And, and especially at the end of the bench, 
it's not about like liking a guy overall. It's about having one reason, right? Like overall, the profile of guy on the street's not going to be good. That's why he's on the street. But you just need one reason. And maybe it's, you know, like maybe somebody I trust really is a fan of this player. Or maybe um, like he had one big game. You know, I I had Marcus Mariota stashed on my bench in Dynasty because he had that one big game in relief of Derek Carr. And I'm like, I don't think Mariota's good, but I don't think anybody on the street is good. Maybe let's hold him. Maybe he gets another starting job. Maybe he's going to be a thing. And now uh, he's actually my quarterback too behind Mahomes because Prescott's out. Uh, So... I like having the watch list and finding guys with one big reason. Um, Richie James, actually, I just had to look up his history in one of my dynasty leagues. He's a guy who, so I drafted him in 2018, cut him, added him in December, 2018, cut him, added him in September of 2019, cut him, added him in November of 2020, cut him, added him in December of 2020, cut him. Are you Um, sure you're not looking at my team? (laughs) I know it's, But it's, you know, I've got that watch list and he's one of those guys where like whenever I had a little bit of extra room, whenever there was somebody I didn't love, sure, I'll just toss Richie James on. I kind of like him. He's probably not ever going to be anything. Um, I did miss out on, it looks like he's finally, he might potentially finally be something. Um, And I missed out on him because I only had one roster spot and I picked um, Jamal Williams instead of of Richie James. I could see why. (laughs) It's it's just one of those things where... um, have some guys that you kind of like, and then if you're not feeling inspired, just grab one of your guys and hold them for a little bit. Um, kind of, you know, have a watch list, and, and every week after that week's games, kind of go down the list and be like, has anybody helped their standing? If so, maybe grab them now. If they haven't helped their standing, eh, leave them on the on the wire for another week and assume that I can get them next week if I need to. Um, so, yeah, I like having a list of names at the ready of guys that you kind of like. Um, in general, a general rule of thumb is wide receivers need talent to produce running backs, just need opportunity. Um, which is why I like just any running back with a pulse. Like if you have empty roster spots, get somebody who is an injury away from, you know, from a role, uh, and hope for the injury. And I mean, don't hope for the injury, but hope that, you know, you get fortunate on cause injuries are going to strike position yourself so that when they do strike, you'll be the one who benefits. Yeah. Uh, but for wide receivers, typically, and, and tight ends, um, Foster Moreau is another guy who winds up on and off my roster a lot. Yeah, um, me too. Find guys who you think, like in theory, could have an interesting talent and in situation where like, if they actually got the role, they could do something with it. Because wide receivers, even if the opportunity's there, if you're not good, you're not going to do anything with it. Yeah. If the running, if the opportunity's there, running back, and you're not good, you're still going to produce something. There's still some baseline level of if they hand you the football, you're going to get some yards. Yeah, yeah. If you're like Lamichael P. Ryan, you'll probably get at least 20 yards. You know, so it's not right. great, but you know, it's better than the receiver who, who basically doesn't even get a target. You know, or gets right. three targets, doesn't catch any of them. You know, so right. for sure. Uh, Tyler Conklin's been another one of mine that I always kind of rotate in and out uh, uh, I've over the years. So, yeah, there's there's certainly a lot of players like that. Why, you know, so speaking of running backs, why is yards per carry just a bad metric? I mean, you've touched on this in the past, but let's delve deeper in it. 
I'll I'll confess, I actually kind of like yards per carry. Like my hatred, <laughs> and it's it's unfair really to penalize yards per carry for the fact that everybody uses it wrong. But the reality is, people think it's something that it's not, and they use it in a manner that it's not suited for. And as a result, there's a lot of you know bad analysis that happens as a result of yards per carry. Um, basically as as a descriptive stat you know stats can either be descriptive they are telling you what happened um and or stats could be predictive they are telling you what's going to happen um and i like descriptive stats a lot you know if you want to know why something happened why a team won why a running back got a lot of opportunity whatever yards per carry is very useful for that but it's so dominated by luck that it's not stable from one sample to the next it's not predictive at all you know, players have a true talent level, but in order for their yards per carry to be more reflective of their true talent level than it is of situational factors, luck, opponent, you know, the fact that, you know, a linebacker fell down or um, whatever, it will take uh, 1,978 carries before a player's yards per carry represents more skill than luck. Uh, and to put that into context, like Maurice Jones-Drew had a long NFL career. He did not have 1,978 carries for his entire career. D'Angelo Williams had fewer than 1,978 carries. Basically, like Frank Gore, 12 years into the league, you can be like, oh, Frank Gore's yards per carry is probably representative of his true talent level. But short of Frank Gore or Adrian Peterson... It's more, and there, it's not that there's no skill component at all. It's just that the luck component is much larger than the skill component. And so if you've got a guy like DeAndre Swift, I think is at like 10 yards per carry right now, you know, he has a ton of rushing yards on very few carries. The most likely outcome going forward is he keeps the very few carries and he loses the huge yards per carry. And I mean, there's always mitigating circumstances. You always have to factor in context. I know Swift was hurt last week and that reduced his workload. Um, but by and large, um, so I run a, a weekly regression to the mean column and that's always the first prediction I make of the year. I grab, these are the backs in the NFL with the highest yards per carry. We're gonna call them group A. These are the backs in the NFL with the lowest yards per carry. We're gonna call them group B. Now, right now, group A is outrushing group B by 25, 30%, whatever, because they have such a strong yards per carry. But Group B is actually getting more carries. And so I predict that Group B is going to outrush Group A over the next four weeks. So that's the format. And I've made that prediction eight times. And it's paid off all eight times. Um, <laughs> which is, I mean, that's not the interesting bit. The, the, yeah. the really fun bit is in seven of the eight times, Group B, which is the low yards per carry cohort, has actually had a higher yards per carry than Group A. I mean, it's like Group A is averaging six yards per carry. Group B is averaging 3.5 yards per carry. And then over the next four weeks, Group B is at like 4.5 and Group A is at like 4.4, uh, wow. which is kind of a statistical fluke. But it just shows that it's just not it's not predictive of the things that we care about. It's um, dominated by luck. It's dominated by outliers. It's more measuring um, a player's top end speed than it is their talent level because typically to get the long outlier runs that that juice your yards per carry, you need to have huge breakaway speed to turn that 20-yard gain into a 60-yard gain, um, which is a valuable skill for a running back to have. All else being equal, you'd rather have the back the back have breakaway speed, but it's just one 
tool in a running back's bag. And there are plenty of really, really good backs who just haven't had that top end breakaway speed. And as a result, their yards per carry underestimates how good they really are. Yeah. I would argue that Peyton Barber is an extreme example of a, of a back who is very, who was very good. Um, and basically outlasted a lot of speedsters on the Tampa Bay roster and climbed over them as a free agent um, to earn basically a lead role in an offense. Now, he may not be a great back or even a particularly good fantasy back, but he was a good running back because of all the things that he could do that didn't include speed. And he often gets made fun of because of the fact that he wasn't fast. Um, but it's, he was kind of, he was kind of old Frank Gore before old, you know, at a young before age. Frank Gore was yeah, old, yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's kind of, so from a family perspective saying that he was great is like, no, but, but as, but thinking from the pure standpoint of watching the aesthetics of running back play, he was a very good player to have that limitation of lacking speed and still be able to produce at a level that a team said, we can rely on him to get what we expect from a play and keep the playbook or close to expectation and keep the playbook open and know that we're not going to be in a lot of third and long or second and long situations when we hand him the football. Yeah. One of my favorite backs is, uh, was Dion Lewis. Oh, yeah. Um, and he had, I mean, he quick as a hiccup, but just, he didn't have the long speed, but he had this preternatural ability to average, like five yards per carry with a long of 13, which if you don't look at box scores, that that doesn't seem that weird. But like, it's insane. Anybody, anytime somebody's over five or six yards per carry, it's usually because they've got like a 40 yarder and they're bringing up their average. You know, if you have 20 carries and one of them goes for 40 yards, that carries bringing your yards per carry up like substantially all on its own. To get five yards per carry with, along of 13, like your median carry needs to be like five or six yards. And he was just hitting, you know, like he's, he's a singles and doubles hitter and he's just hitting like everything, everything that comes his way. Every run is four yards, five yards, four yards, five yards. Um, and he couldn't really stay healthy. And, you know, he didn't have the NFL career that at points I expected of him, but, um, you know, he was, he was so fun to watch and um, he was just a great example of like how misleading yards per carry can be because his yards per carry looks as good as somebody like say Felix Jones, but Dion Lewis is doing a lot more to help an offense than Felix Jones was. Yeah. I think Jordan Howard was a, was a, a lighter was kind of maybe a lesser example of that too, because early on in Chicago, you'd often see him, have gained somewhere between basically four and and fifteen yards on a regular yeah. basis, and yeah. and that's why the NFL qualifies explosive plays when they chart backs. Explosive plays, I believe, are ten yards or, or greater for them. It's not it's not anything that you know a fan would think a breakaway run of you know 30 40 50 yards it's really like somewhere it's either 10 or 12 yards i always forget what they qualified it as but it's it was the quality um control coach for the packers during the i think dorsey levin amon green years who kind of came up with this 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 idea and kind of it kind of took 
took hold in the NFL of like what was an explosive play on a pass play and a run play, and that they found that if one if you had one of those plays, that your chances for at least earning a field goal substantially rose. If you had two of those plays, your your chances for uh, for a touchdown substantially rose. I can't be me without remarking on that. That sure that's largely selection bias. You know, it's uh, it's fun there. and it's a good stat, and I like I like the idea of explosive plays. But the this whole um, you know like what percentage of drives featuring a sack end in a punt or like what percentage of drives featuring an explosive play end in a touchdown. Um, it's largely selection bias. Um, and there's some neat, like once you realize it's selection bias, there's some neat artifacts you can find in the data. Like for instance, um, the average explosive passing play is longer than the average explosive rushing play. Not that surprising. But a, a drive with an explosive rushing play is more likely to end in a touchdown than a drive with an explosive passing play. Um, and this seems, it, it, but it's it's selection bias. It's because explosive passing plays are more common. Yeah. So if you condition on there being an explosive running play, you're more likely to get drives that featured both an explosive run and an explosive pass, uh, and those are more likely to be touchdowns. Whereas if you condition on there being an explosive passing play, you're typically going to get drives with just one explosive play where it was the pass. That's interesting. Well, we learned something new, so that's good. Uh, at least I did. So maybe that's kind of my whole shtick on Twitter that. that that everything interesting is selection bias, which I mean, I don't do it to rain on anybody's parade. Like I like the interesting stuff. I like the, but it's, it's important to me to, to separate out the stuff that's like fun and the yeah. stuff that's like predictive and that's, useful. That's all right. I got my hoodie just in case, you know, so I can, <laughs> I can handle the rain. It'll be good. So, so where, so then where do you stand on the idea of momentum? Cause I know that like, I've talked about momentum and saying that like, a lot of folks who are more, you know, analytically heavy with with data tend to say momentum doesn't exist. And I'm like, my, you know, my rhetoric has always been, well, if <laughs> if if you don't know momentum doesn't exist, then you haven't played a lot of sports. You you know, but I I know that it's hard to prove something like the idea of momentum. But I'm just wondering what you think of that as a concept in in sport. Yeah. So. I'll lead off. Momentum, absolutely 100%, no question exists. There's zero doubt in my mind that momentum is a real thing. And you know this because you can, like, ask players who played the game. And they'll they'll accurately tell you, like, yep, absolutely. You know, I felt that. Or, like, oh, no, you know, like, our spirit was broken. The problem was, and, and this gets to the divide I was talking earlier about there being descriptive factors and there being predictive factors. And analytics, um, by and large is very, very predictively focused. You know, it's focusing on what about the past can we translate into results in the future? And predictively, momentum is really hard because as with any emotional response, you never know how somebody's going to react to something, you know? Brett Favre, great example. He loses his father, plays the Oakland Raiders the very next day, you know, you can tell he is in this tremendous emotional pain and he's playing through it. And it's this huge catharsis on the field. He throws five touchdowns. You know, he has this monster game. Um, and there have been other players who have suffered a tremendous loss like that. And they've tried to play through it. And you could tell that they're having this emotional moment on the field and their their head's not there and they have a terrible game. And so from an analytic perspective, you can look at that and you can say, 
predictively suffering a tremendous loss. I don't know what that's going to do. That has no effect on performance. You know, predictively it has no effect. But like descriptively, of course it has an effect on performance. <laughs> if, right. if, if your child dies and you're doing your job the next day, that's going to impact your performance. It really just means we don't know how it's going to impact your performance. Yeah. Predictively, it's not useful. But but and and I get into it sometimes with some of the analytics people that I feel like their language overstates the the strength of their evidence. They're making a valid point that needs to be made, but they're making it in terms that I think are unnecessarily inflammatory. Right. You know, you know, like the running backs don't matter movement. It's not, of course, running backs matter. Right. Of course they do. Right. You know, if you want to say that running backs are largely interchangeable and there's this huge surplus of players with NFL caliber talent and um, as a result, you know, like they matter less than many other positions. And if you want to quantify that, that's fine. But when you're going out and you're, you're making broad claims, momentum doesn't exist that are easily refuted by people's direct experience. I think you're just tarnishing the reputation of the movement you're trying to foster. Yes. Yes. I think that's, uh, that's so well stated and, and it, it's fascinating because, um, in, you know, you look at, Something that I had a discussion with with U.S. head of scouting Russ Landy yesterday on our on our scout talk pod was about his point that quarterbacks need a need to have a little narcissism in their personality, um, or maybe even quite a bit, um, in order to believe in themselves after, especially after maybe a horrible half or or you know a horrible three quarters. I think of Russell Wilson in the Packers game in the in the divisional playoffs or the conference playoffs and it was divisional playoffs actually I think because it was the second to the last game before the Super Bowl um and where he had probably the worst half of his life and they show him on the sideline in hindsight you know doing the whole self-talk thing and doing it in front of everybody that everybody calls corny now and you know kind of goes after him for but you can tell that you know it, that just looking at how he performs and with the number of comebacks that he has statistically that leads the league, um, and how the Seahawks had the uh, plus two hundred and sixty nine point differential in the fourth quarter since two thousand twelve that leads all NFL teams and some of the things that are just whether they're like sticky or not. There's a lot of anecdotal things about their ability to come back and and win games that that have been league leading and a lot of that is driven by the person who's at the helm of the offense um and you know whether you like the personality quirks of Russell Wilson or not the the idea that you know to me the predictability of how people handle things personality personality behavior or personality is not predictable because of all the variables that influence it. And, and, you know, if, you know, I, I'm very, I, I like to be very sensitive to the idea of what is psychologically normal, because I don't know if there really is anything that is psychologically normal, but in our, in our, you know, our basic society, we would say that a level, a certain level of narcissism is not normal. Um, and so therefore it isn't probably predictable. Um, so in that sense, the quarterbacks who are good, it may be predictable that they're not predictable in, in that sense. So I would, I would shy away from even normal and I would go more about like functional. 
Yeah, you know, like is this adaptive? Is this helping you? And this was a big hobby horse of mine a few years back when everybody was getting on Odell Beckham. You know, he's being like this huge diva and like he's kicking the kicking net because he's upset. And then like the next week, he's like kissing the kicking net on the sideline, and everybody's like, "Oh, that Odell, he's a bum." Whatever. You know, uh, the, my favorite one was like, "Why can't he be a non-diva like Antonio Brown?" <laughs> and and this was this feels like a yards per carry. Um, I know. And the funny thing too, especially was that at the time that people were saying this, Antonio Brown led the position in unsportsmanlike conduct penalties because of his post-touchdown celebrations. And they're like, oh, but that's not affecting his performance. He's just celebrating after. And I'm like, it's a way of drawing attention to himself. But like, look at all of the best. I mean, not all of them. You got Julio Jones and Calvin Johnson. Counterexamples. But look at look at a a vastly overrepresentative sample of the best wide receivers in history have been like these malignant narcissists drawing attention to themselves. Uh, You know, Terrell Owens doing sit-ups in the driveway. One of the best receivers of all time. You know, Jerry Rice. He like the the 49ers won a Super Bowl and he was pouting in the media afterwards because he didn't get Super Bowl MVP. Yes. You know, it's it, these are hyper competitive, healthy yeah. and well-adjusted personalities. And and if we see that like they're dramatically overrepresented at a certain position, we should maybe ask ourselves: Is there something about this personality that is useful that lends itself to success at that position? And I'd argue receivers a lot like quarterback, where like. You need to think that you're the best. You know, you need to think that you're open every snap in order, even if you're not, you need to think every time you run that route that that ball should be coming that way, that you deserve it. Whether you're Odell Beckham or Jerry Rice or Freddie Mitchell, who's thanking God for his hands and nicknaming himself Fred X, and he has like 600 receiving yards on the air. Like there's something about that mentality that gives you an edge. And when we're like pathologizing it, you know, that's not a helpful and healthy personality for like getting groceries at the grocery store or for like, you know, going on dating apps. But for an NFL wide receiver, this is probably an asset, not a liability. That this is, this, it's not that Odell Beckham is successful in spite of being a diva. It, being a diva is probably why Odell Beckham was Odell Beckham. It's probably why Antonio Brown. You know, and obviously at some point with Antonio Brown, uh, whether due to head injuries or due to whatever the speculation may be, that it reached a point where it was no longer adaptive and it started being maladaptive. But the fact that so many of these wide receivers have this personality type should be evidence to us that maybe this is like not a bad thing for a wide receiver to have. Yeah, if I, I love that point. And, and I think that if you take it from the standpoint of studying the the tools like the techniques and the concepts of the position you begin to understand it a little bit because when you think of the detail of what your stance should be how you have to the form you have to have when you come off the line how you have to regard the defender in front of you the linebacker and the safety read the same thing as the quarterback to make the adjustments with what route you're going to run and then run an artful enough route with your stem your break and and being able to sell different things with some defender who's playing tight to you or trying to disguise something from you and you do all that make the catch take a hard hit or have someone who's nearly you know in a there maybe they're interfering with you and getting away with it and you have to do all that within the span of like four and a half seconds and you make the catch 
that's a that's a battle in one play and and you and maybe it maybe you win half the time you're gonna your mentality if it gets that so focused on this minutia maybe that may not be healthy in the scheme of things but for football you're going to want to celebrate that because you've worked your ass off to just get to the point that you made a catch you know so for some mindsets especially to have the confidence in a hyper in a in a hyper competitive narrow margin of error you know narrow margin of difference in talent you know type of field yeah to have somebody who's constantly in that or it can stay in that mindset of battling and being confident when they lose you, you know that's got to be there it's the same thing with quarterback especially in an NFL period like I used to I mean I knew reporters from the 70s who interviewed quarterbacks and some of the quarterbacks that we venerated um during that time and and wanted them as pitchmen and and supposedly these you know we pathologize them in a positive way we're just awful human beings to deal with like just awful like I you know I had a I have a family member who wrote for Newsweek and she was a writer in the 70s in Newsweek and you know some of the things that quarterbacks said to her um you know that are considered you know terrific players and terrific examples of society you know from a from an ad perspective are just we're awful we're, had awful behavior and they maybe not be awful human beings but they had awful behavior and i would say that some even today that some of the quarterbacks in recent years that we venerated things that i can't say on air because i don't a have proof but people i know who've talked to me are reliable some of the people that we venerated are their behavior has been awful and if they didn't get away with it and our teams didn't um deal with it and handle it in a certain way sometimes not always in above board fashion they you would you would think worse of them than some of the players that you think the worst of right now and they're and they're seen as clean shiny examples who are doing like who are in the limelight right now even like after their careers you know so it's it, but the, that's the thing. It's That's the weird thing about football is even as a fan or an analyst, you know, do I think Steve Smith's behavior on the field is is healthy or good? Not in the least. Is there a part of me that loves it? And I'm ashamed to say so a little bit, but I love the, the attitude that he has and kind of the I, I just don't give a fuck kind of thing that he that he's put out. When I look at the game and how it's built, there's a part of me that says it's not healthy to like this or functional to like it, but I do, you know, and I and I like that about him. And I and I kind of like how, where he brings it even on NFL.com on occasion, even though if he was in my living room and behaving that way, I wouldn't probably want him in my house, you know, so there's a and that and that I think turns into a larger conversation about, you know, how we build players up or how we build people up in a certain way and we celebrate it, but then we get pissed off when they actually behave that way in all phases of their life because we've conditioned right. them to, or given them tacit approval to be that way. Right. I mean, yeah, there's a story about like John Elway 
you know, famously competitive, that he'd have people over to his house and they'd be hanging out and you know, they'd play a game of ping pong or whatever, right? And somebody would beat John Elway and John Elway would demand a rematch right then and there. And if they beat him again, he would demand another rematch and he would make you keep playing him until he won because he could not stand losing that much. Now that made Elway a hell of a quarterback, but that sounds like a miserable, per- I don't want to hang out with John Elway. That sounds miserable. You know, Tom Brady has the best social media team basically on the planet right now you know he seems like such a like quirky and fun guy who's always like making fun (laughs) at his own expense but do i think tom brady jokes at his own expense in real life no i think tom brady remembers every person who has ever made a grudge has ever made a joke at his expense in his entire life and keeps a mental list that he checks every night michael jordan's hall of fame absolutely yeah Yeah, no, like, I don't want my kid to be like Mike. I'm sure Mike was a miserable person. It made him a hell of a basketball player, but I don't, these, they're pathologies. They're pathologies that are, it's a question of whether it's functional and adaptive. And in this context, it was absolutely functional and adaptive. Um, But in most contexts, this is not, this is not healthy, adaptive behavior. The Cecil, to me, the Cecil Lammy, Russell Wilson story that I've often told about, you know, Lammy interviewing Russell at the at the Senior Bowl. Everyone talking about how great of a leader he was, but that was about the only remarkable attribute that he had. To according to most beat writers who were following him, because he was short, he transferred to another team. He was a part of. He really only had success in the Big Ten offense, and otherwise, he was just kind of a a playground scrambler. And and but he had these leadership skills that Fortune five hundred executives would just are akin to that and that he i could see him one day giving these types of talks at the you know at the dinner at the the motivational dinners that norman schwarzkopf's doing right now and like you know things like that and i remember watching cecil ask a question russell wilson bolt upright his arms go back and like bro down pose for the south for south park and look angry and then he caught himself and like just kind of his, he let his shoulders relax and he just kind of smiled and I was like what what did Cecil ask him and Cecil was like I he goes it was you know Tim Tebow had just beaten the Steelers and in the playoffs and and so he said how would you feel about backing up Tim Tebow and his and he literally bolted up out of his chair and looked pissed off at the idea of that and then caught realized what he did and caught himself and said and smiled and and gave that off shucks kind of thing that he's done very good of being able to do and says i i really have no intention of backing up anybody in the nfl and when cecil told me that's what he said i hadn't even watched russell wilson yet but i thought i don't know how good this guy's gonna be but i've gotta i gotta put him higher on my list of who i need to watch when i to finish up the rsp because that's a that kind of competitive mindset that kind of um the fact that he that you could see him look pissed. I've always compared him to like Michael Corleone in the idea that he was this guy that comes across as this kind of gentle, composed, laid back kind of human being. But underneath that is a killer. And I think that that's kind of where it's a part of that. Again, that dysfunctional kind of personality that's extremely functional in one sphere specific sphere and that's quarterbacking in the nfl he's a killer he may be corny he may be dorky he may be contrived he may be phony however you want to describe that 
and and if you think that fine but he's a killer and i and to me for what a quarterback has to be i admire that <laughs> so so yeah what about um i think speaking of players i mean i talked about one just a minute ago and steve smith i've always been a huge fan of smith i i know he's considered a great wide receiver i don't always think he's considered one of the greatest of all time though chase stewart has done some wonderful work you know historically on steve smith to say he should get more acclaim than he does who's someone that you feel like deserves that kind of acclaim based on what you know about them i mean yeah i could go a lot of ways here um so i'm really really big on nfl history i love it um and typically there's you know there's a lot of people who are really big on you know analytics and statistical analysis and they're they're 99.9% of them, they're focused on present and future facing, right? And there's a lot of people who are big on NFL history. Um, but by and large, they're, you know, the vast majority of them are, are focused, like not on analytics and not on the statistics of it. And there's this tiny little cross section in the Venn diagram, like that intersection of history um, and analytics. And it's, it's about, you know, trying to put players careers into the proper context um, and trying to to create, you know, like to, to, to get a better feel for like what really happened and to better understand what happened in the past using a lot of methods and, and um, tools from the present. Um, and so I, I've fallen pretty hard down that rabbit hole. It's, it's a very narrow slice of the fan base that's into that sort of stuff. Um, but I could I mean, there's a lot of different ways I could go with this question. I could name some real, real old timers. Um, I joke on Twitter uh, that I'm really just a Del Schaffner trivia account because, <laughs> like, it just, he comes up so much. Um, well, like, give once me, you start, give me him, an older guy. Give me a guy that maybe we grew up with, and maybe someone that younger folks have grown up with. Okay, yeah. So I like um, two receivers, Del Schaffner and Billy Houghton, um, are older guys who like it's. It's just criminal that they're not in the Hall of Fame. It's it's absurd. Um, Billy Houghton like retired as the all time leading receiver in with receiving yards. Uh, he held that record, and he's not in the Hall of Fame. He like he still owns a bunch of rookie records. Um, he had like twelve hundred yards in twelve games as a rookie. Um, lots of thousand yard seasons and. Uh, there's some scuttlebutt. He was actually the first president of the NFL Players Association. Oh. Um, yeah, he was like one of the guys who started the union. And like the demands, looking back, the NFL in the 50s was such a small outfit compared to what it is today. And the demands like are comical. Like one of their demands was the players, when they were doing two-a-days, they wanted to have like clean jock straps and um and socks <laughs> to change into in the second practice of two a days they didn't want to have to wear the same gross sweaty stuff from the first practice of two a days and that's what they were asking for it wasn't huge stuff um but then the big thing was um houghton was really instrumental in creating the pension plan for the nfl because oh. you had all these players who were just getting beat up and then spit out and they had all these health problems afterwards and so he agitated hard um, and he basically delivered an ultimatum to the owners. He said, look, you can have a pension or you can have an antitrust suit. That's entirely your choice. We, it was like, which route you want to go, that's up to you. 
but give us a pension or we're going to sue you for antitrust violations. And this is, you know, the 50s when that threat had teeth to it. Um, so there's some scuttlebutt that like, that's the reason he didn't get his yeah, property because yeah. especially back then the media was more a mouthpiece for the organization. It wasn't an adversarial media, um, where like the enemy of the NFL was the enemy of the media. And he kind of didn't get the acclaim and the recognition that he really deserved based on his play. Uh, Schaffner's a more interesting one because he absolutely got the acclaim and recognition he deserved. Um, he made the all-decade team in the 60s, basically ba on like three or four seasons. And he made it over like a lot of Hall of Fame receivers who played seven, eight years in the decade. Um, but people at the time were like, you know, we saw Schaffner play and he was amazing and we remember that. Uh, a lot of people think that the NFL invented zone defenses to combat Bob Hayes uh, because he was so famously fast. But really it was like Schaffner who was leading the charge on that six or eight years earlier. He was like the first guy who was just like too fast to cover. Um, and he had thousand yard seasons for multiple different teams back in like 12 game seasons he did. Um, so he was really good. And he just, for some reason, I don't really know. There's not as easy of a story to tell for Schaffner about why he fell off the radar as there is with Houghton. Um, but I think both of those guys, they're not like Jerry Rice, Randy Moss, inner circle level, but they should both have been comfortable Hall of Famers. And it's weird that they're not in yet. Um, so those are my old timey guys for somebody we grew up with. Um, I really like Henry Ellard. Yes. Uh, what a great pick. <laughs> I, one of my favorite trivia questions, everybody knows Sterling Sharp. He, Sterling Sharp has all this backing for the hall of fame. And I say, you know, like Sterling Sharp was dominant during his career, right? Like his career was short but he was dominant during his career. You know, obviously he's competing with Jerry Rice. Obviously Jerry Rice led every major statistical category during Sharp's career, right? Um, but you know who ranked third in basically in, in receiving yards during Sterling Sharp's career? It's actually Sterling Sharp because Henry Ellard had more receiving yards during Sterling Sharp's career than <laughs> Sterling Sharp did. And then Ellard added before and he added after. And it's kind of easy to tell why we don't like Ellard as much because, um, he wasn't as diverse of a receiver as like a sharp or a rice, you know, he's doing the same thing over and over again. And he didn't get the touchdowns and we've always placed too much emphasis on touchdowns, but from the standpoint of an NFL offense, like the only two things that matter are yards and first downs yards, get you closer to the end zone. First downs, get you more plays, more chances to get to the end zone. Like that's how you score points is you get yards and first downs and Henry Ellard converted catches into first downs at a rate higher than, like basically anyone else in modern NFL history. Like he had a year with Washington uh, where he just changed teams. And this was back when like free agents never succeeded on their new team. And it's his first year on a new team. And he like 96% of his catches went for a first down, which is just an unheard of number. Like today, if a guy gets 80% of his catches going for first downs, he's leading the NFL in, in conversion rate. Like Vincent Jackson and Mike Evans will convert 80% of their catches to first downs. Um, and so a lot of like, you know, you look at, you look at statistics and you look at like a player's reception totals. Um, and usually receptions are a pretty good indicator of first downs because we don't always have the first down data, but a guy with a lot of receptions, he's helping his team because he likely got a lot of first downs. The reception doesn't matter, but the first down does. Uh, but Henry Ellard's one who can't be judged by the receptions alone because th the guy was basically like a walking first and 10. He was a new set of downs basically every time he ran out. And he was probably the last great true deep threat. Um, 
you know, like super prolific, like you have Deshaun Jackson and, and Vincent Jackson today, but um, Henry Ellard was like that last guy, that last of like the James Lofton kind of era where he's just getting you 18 yards and a first down every time he catches the ball. I, I love those picks. I, I just absolutely love those picks. I've always been a Henry Ellard fan. A guy who I've often talked about that fits that mold probably too is is William Andrews. I knew you were going to bring yeah. him up. I, that's why yeah, I didn't. Yeah. Otherwise, I would have. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. And, and I often talk about him. So, I mean, but, you know, the first guy to have, um, you know, 2,000 total yards from scrimmage, um, I believe he was the first guy to do that. Um, at running back before Roger Craig, you, you know, now Roger also had a thousand, a thousand, I believe. So, but he was, you know, Andrews was, was a powerful fullback who blocked for Joe Cribs, who was known as the star Auburn back, who had some pretty good years in Buffalo early in his career before injury. Um, but as a fullback, I mean, he was able to, he had speed, he had terrific power. He could catch, he could do it all. And I've, as I've often said, I've read, you know, you know, Walter Payton say in Sport Magazine that there's anybody that he would let, he would block for and play fullback for. It would be Matsui because Matsui did it for him. And it would be William Andrews because William Andrews could do it all and he admired his game. And, you know, if it weren't for the nerve damage that he wound up with with drop foot from a, from a freak ACL tear from just running on grass without... Um, during a practice and on a non-contact injury where he came back and he actually had one, like maybe not a decent fantasy type of season, but he, to hit what he came back and did, I think he had like eight, seven or 800 yards. And then they tried him at tight end late in his career and it just didn't work out. So he's one John Jefferson. I'm a huge John Jefferson fan and he didn't, you know, he, he had an eight year career and, only three of those years were spectacular. Um, but those three years, he had, you know, he had 1,001 yards as a rookie, 17.9 yards per reception, 13 touchdowns. You know, maybe that was couched with the fact that an equally underrated player in West Chandler and then Kellen Winslow were, were I think Winslow was a little later um, than 78, but they were all playing together during the at least 79, 80 part of the season um, and joiner too and, charlie joiner and let's not forget charlie that Joyner. was that was a stacked stacked offense yeah it was an amazing offense and he had a third you know in in a in 1980 having 1340 yards and 13 touchdowns averaging 16.3 yards per catch pretty awesome you know he was an acrobatic player he was tough he could run good routes and then it just kind of fell off for him after that. You know, I mean, the, his best year was a year with James Lofton, I believe, in Green Bay in 83, where he had 830 yards and seven scores. But from just a film perspective, he was a dynamic wide receiver who, I mean, there was there's just some incredible work that he that he displayed that would have that would have. Um, worked in today's nfl without a doubt in my mind he would have and he really would have benefited from the player empower, empowerment era as uh sigmund bloom likes to call it because like what happened there was after three years he was just dramatically outperforming his contract like he he was setting records for production through his first one two three years you know he's an all pro um and so he demanded he got he you know he wanted to get paid 
And back in 1980, that wasn't done. You didn't know. That's that's not how that worked. NFL teams had all the power. Players don't ask for more money. NFL teams will give you more money, maybe, if they feel like it. But you don't ask for that. Um, and so then San Diego traded him to Green Bay. And I think there was just kind of a sour taste in the league's mouth that, like, oh, look at this. Prima donna, yeah. But he receiver demanding he be compensated fairly for his for his skills. Uh Whereas, you know, today, like nobody would bat an eye about that. If people would say, of course, Jefferson wants to but the guy. Like, it's it's funny, but there's still an undercurrent with that kind of reaction okay, yeah. To, yeah. to things when players do speak out about things. It's kind of like you overprivileged, you know, and it's kind of like, actually, they're actually coming from under that bar in right. some respects than what you actually than what you actually think. But yeah, Vincent Jackson drove me nuts. He so he signed a rookie contract with San Diego, signed a five year contract. At the time, you needed four years of service to hit free agency, right? Yeah. So he signs a five year rookie contract, plays out the entire five years, fulfills every term, never hear a peep out of him, like just model citizen. And then he's supposed to hit free agency, but it's the uncapped year. And the uncapped year has a provision that, like, actually, for this one year only, you need six years of service to hit free agency. And the Chargers knew this in advance. They knew this years in advance, and they were deliberately structuring their rookie contracts so that players would hit free agency in the uncapped year, but then, you know, because of the uncapped year, they wouldn't actually hit free agency. And so Vincent Jackson is saying, like, look, I, I fulfilled my contract. I agreed to play for five years. I played for five years. I overperformed all expectations, right? I want to get paid. Give me a new contract. And San Diego's like, you know what? No, we don't have to. You can't negotiate with any other team. What else are you going to do? We'll pay you, you know, like $500,000. You can take it or leave it, right? What else are you going to do? You can't do anything else. And like in this situation, like it's clear that San Diego is, they're, they're assholes, right? It's, it's yeah. AJ Smith being a, a dirtbag, trying to get like ring every penny he can out of a player who's been nothing but like is fulfilled everything that's been asked of him. And Vincent Jackson said, no, pound sand. I don't have a contract with you. I'm not going to play for you. I, I fulfilled my contract. And then the media and the fans get on it and they're like, oh, look at Vincent Jackson. He's holding out. He's not holding out. He doesn't have a contract, <laughs> right? Like if I don't show up for a work for work at a person who doesn't employ me, I'm not holding out. I did not go into the office in Menlo Park at office today, but I'm not holding out from Apple. I'm not employed by Apple. I don't have a contract with Apple. If Apple offered me you know, 30 cents an hour to go sweep their floors. And I declined not to take that. I'm not holding out from Apple. I'm declining not to enter into but, a contract. But Apple might be just for. weird enough that if you like stand outside and say, and, ha and, and like have media around saying that you're holding out, they might just pay you to get rid of you. Maybe. I don't you know. know. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Um, you know, it, it, I think the average fan has gotten a lot better yeah. at that. And I think the media has gotten a lot better at that. I mentioned in the 50s, they were basically a mouthpiece of the NFL. Um, and I think we have a much better adversarial media who today in a Vincent Jackson situation, I think you would get articles that would say, look, Vincent Jackson's not holding out. Here's what happened. It's kind of messed up. Let's be mad at the person who engineered this messed up situation and not Vincent Jackson. Now, whether the fans would actually buy into that, because fans are fans, you know, yeah. Every every San Diego fan feels like, oh, he doesn't want me. I'm I'm being rejected at the dance. Yeah. Um, and they they're not really interested in the nuance of the situation. Yeah, it's the but tribal I think at least nature. today, yeah. Right. It, we're, we're progress. I I 
I think it's pretty strong progress in that direction, at least. Well, I think that, you know, anytime I get to have Adam on to be able to share his insights and, and the history that he's learned with the game that, uh, we're making progress. So hopefully you continue to make progress in your week and, uh, we will see you next week at RSP film and data. If there's a subject that you'd like to hear us talk about, you can always email me at Matt Waldman, uh, or Matt Waldman at gmail.com. Thanks.